I don't know if you ever thought about it when you sing the doxology that we just sang, but <clears throat> what you are remembering, what you're memorializing, is that each Sunday um, we worship with the angels in heaven and all of God's people around the world at the same time. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. We're calling the angels out together with us. And all across God's creation, in the heavens and on the earth, we're worshiping Him. And part of the worship of our God is the teaching of His Word. And I'm going to tell you, this is one of those fear and trembling sermons. If you did your uh, personal worship this week, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, by the way, my name is Matt. Tom is our senior pastor. If you heard about this really awesome preacher... Uh, at this church called Rio Vista, and you said, ah, finally, we've made arrangements and we're going to go here and preach. Well, come next week. Um, but uh, we're continuing this in this book of 2 Samuel, and uh, if you've been doing your personal worship, you know that this passage is a, a difficult passage. And in my preparations, um, first of all, I found myself sort of in mourning all week as I studied it for a lot of reasons. And maybe you did too. I got some feedback from people uh, who had been doing their personal worship and talking about that. Um, you know, this is one of those stories you can just kind of read over it, gloss over it, and, and not really think about the horrible things that took place in this passage and where they came from. And so I mourned at the fact that a, a woman, the daughter of the king of God's people, was raped by her brother, the heir to the throne and left desolate. That's the word. I mourn that the bitter complexities of the, and the politics of this family, this royal family, this monarchy, and this kingdom created this conniving conspiracy that led then to that son's murder by the other son next in line to the throne, whose sister had been murdered. I mourn that. It's horrible. But I'll tell you what I mourn even more than that. I mourn that this all began with King David. The messianic chosen king of God. Over the chosen people of God. Such a glorious and created, uh, courageous man. So hewn in God's image, it says of him that he was, man, he was a man after God's own heart. And it was David, the great victor, the great warrior, the one who brought Israel to the pinnacle of glory and power around the world. In the name of God, it was that David who fell in battle against his own sin. And it was that sin that echoed throughout his household and emasculated him as a leader, spun him into confusion and weakness as he watched his kingdom fall apart. What we witness in David and in the consequences of his sin is the stealing away of the beautiful image of God in him and the redemptive work to which he's been called. 
Today we're going to talk about some difficult things, and I tried to find places to insert jokes and things like that, and it didn't work very well. Um, we're going to talk about pain. We're going to talk about uh, abusive women. We're going to talk about uh, crimes committed against people. We're going to talk about crimes you've committed. And um, it will all be in the name of helping us reconstruct today with great clarity the beautiful image of God in you as a man or as a woman in Christ. And the simple purpose for everyone who calls on the name of Christ, and that is the redemption of his world. So I want you to do something for me for just a moment. If you need to close your eyes to imagine things, you can do that, or you can look at the ceiling, whatever you need to do. But I want you to take a moment to separate yourself in your mind from everything but God and His Word. I want you to imagine how God sees you through all of your junk, through all of your insecurities, through all of the wounds that you have, through all of the cultural influences on you, through all of your own selfishness and sin. I want you to strip all that away and I want you to see, I want you to see yourself, try to envision yourself the way your loving father sees you, the way a father looks beyond all of the junk of his child and only sees that little baby laying there innocent and pure no matter what happens. I want you to take a moment and I want you to try to see yourself the way God made you. Do you know how David saw things? King David, the messianic king, the chosen king of God's chosen people. Let me show you how the beautiful image of God in David came out in the way that he saw things. King David said, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And yet you have made him a little lower than the, the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. What else did David know? David knew that in the beginning, God created everything and that it was good. And he knew that he created man to have dominion over his physical creation. And he knew that man was in perfect union with God at that time. And that that is the way that things were meant to be. And that that was his redemptive work as the king, was to help to lead the redemption of the world. Through the people of God. Remember, that was the promise to Abraham hundreds of years before. The promise to Abraham was that he would be the father of a great nation and that through that nation, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And guess what? The nation was on the scene and it was led by King David and he knew that that was his mission and the mission of his nation. But here's what else David knew, and this is what I want to really focus on today. 
He knew that even in the midst of the world full of life, that man was alone. Think about that. He knew through God's word, even in the midst of a world full of life, teeming with life and beauty, that man was still alone. Why? Because that man did not have someone suitable for him. uniquely aligned to him. Now think about this. The creator knew that even his relationship with the creator was not fully manifest without the creation of a partner for him in this world. A helpmate suitable for him. A helper, a word in the Greek, parakletos, that is the same word that's used to describe the Holy Spirit. The encourager, the equipper, the the empowerer, the one that holds accountable, the one that lifts you up, the one from whom your strength is derived. The man, the one who was to cultivate the garden, the one who was to create and grow and bring about more beauty and health and life and sustainability to the world, that was his mission, that was his creation mandate, needed a parakletos needed a person after the Holy Spirit in his life. And so God created woman, and David knew this. And here's something I saw when I was looking at that passage in Genesis this week when he created woman. I had never seen this before. God had created lots of creatures, right? Male and female, he made them after their own kind. But then it said it's not good for him to be alone, the man to be alone. Let us make someone in our image. Let's make someone after his likeness, unique to him. And so God creates woman. And you know what Adam says that I had never caught before? He says, at last. I'd never noticed those words before. He says, at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And David knew that that was the beautiful, creative work of God, the relationship between a man and a woman, the dignity and character of each of those beings that God had made after his own image, the man, the provider, the creator, the grower of things, the woman, the encourager, the equipper, the empowerer, beautiful in dignity and honor. And David knew that. And he knew that therefore the two shall leave their mother and father and cleave to each other and become what? One flesh. David had that vision for a man and a woman and for a marriage and he knew those things. And in that context and with that knowledge, he still heard a whisper in his ear. He still heard this incessant voice of the kings and the cultures around him, of his own sin, of his own lust, his own depravity, those influences that God warned Israel about when he told them in Deuteronomy not to do three things. He said, one day you're going to want a king, and maybe you'll get a king. But let me tell you what that king must never, ever do. Number one, do not amass military might. Number two, do not amass material wealth. And number three, 
do not have many wives. Why? Lest his heart be drawn away from the Lord. In his defense of the promised land, in the midst of his mission to protect it and to grow it and to bring about redemption to the world, David saw that forbidden fruit of power and wealth and lust and he let it in. So here's what's so troubling about this and another source of my mourning this week. Um, the, one of the worst parts about it is that uh, I don't even think he even realized it was happening. I don't even think his people did. I think they thought everything was going great. I think that maybe even they thought that David's indiscretion with Bathsheba was a bump in the road. But what they didn't realize is that a whole world had been created in which that was possible. A whole culture had been infused by the cultures around it, had been corrupted by the sins of the nations and kings around it. And, King, and David began to look more and more and more like those kings and less and less and less like God's king until you could discern no difference. And so whoever David was was who the king was, and that must be who God was, and that must be what God did. And thus David ruled from that place. You see, this sin of David was simply a reenactment of a sin that happens, that's happened over and over and over since the fall. Think about it. David, in perfect fellowship with God, in, that, in one sense, was naked and unashamed. You remember that? When David, when all pistons were firing and everything was going great, and David danced before the altar of God, he danced till his clothes fell off. Remember that? And he was naked and he was unashamed. That was the whole part of the story, because he was fully given to his, to his Lord. But then, he saw something forbidden that seemed good to him, and he took it for himself. And then in his sin, it revealed his nakedness that he tried to cover it up. He tried to find the fig leaf that was bringing Uriah home from war to create an illusion to cover up his nakedness, which was the fact that Bathsheba was pregnant with his child. And that didn't work. So then he covered it up by killing Uriah, by having him killed in battle. And what you don't know yet, but you'll see as the story unfolds, is that King David was expelled from Jerusalem. He was kicked out of the garden, and a curse was pronounced that the sword would never leave his house. Do you know where else that similar curse was pronounced? Do you remember when Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden? What it said, it said the, two, the cherubim were, were stationed at the gate to guard the garden, and a flaming sword was present, was present there, pointing in all directions. And so God, through Nathan, pronounced the judgment on David, the sword, the consequence of his sin. The sword will never leave your house. And here's what's really interesting about the devastating consequences of sin. Okay, so from Abraham to David is 14 generations. A climb of the people of God, of the nation of Israel. And then David sins with Bathsheba. And 14 generations end in its destruction. Just to make it plain about where we're going today, in case you didn't get the uh, connection there, you can examine your own life and your own relationships and your own decisions and you can watch these consequences, these domino effects, these, these peaks 
and valleys. And you can do what David did. You can rationalize and you can justify and you can change the rules so that in the moment it makes it look like it's okay and in fact maybe even preferable and desirable. But at the end of the day, you've broken God's eternal law. You've separated yourself from his unchanging character. And just like the laws of physics that are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and that gravity will be true tomorrow just as it was yesterday and it will for eternity, so are the laws and character of God. And what was true on that day that Adam appeared in the garden and that Eve appeared by his side about men and about women and about marriage and about sex and about all those things will never change. And you can fight against them and you can rail against them and you can justify and you can interpret and you can do whatever you want. But at the end of the day, I promise you, the dominoes are clicking. Click, 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 falling. And consequences on you internally, on your family, the people you love in your workplace... in your community and in this culture are being meted out. David's sin was a pivot point. It echoed throughout his household and it infiltrated the hearts and mind of his children and ultimately it destroyed his kingdom and it began right here in this story with his sons. So if you will, turn with me to 2 Samuel 13. Starting at verse 1. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. You may have heard it called Tamar, but I've called it that my whole life. But Dr. Margot Quinn, who has her PhD in Old Testament languages, told me that it's Tamar. So I'm calling her Tamar. So there, that was your plucky comic relief. That was it. That's all you get. It's all downhill from here. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar, and after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. A couple little things you need to know if you didn't sort this out in your personal worship. Okay, Amnon and Absalom are sons of David, half-brothers, but two different mothers. Amnon is the heir to the throne. Absalom is next. So that adds a little complexity to the story, doesn't it? Starts to feel like that TV show House of Cards now. There are political maneuvering. There's political maneuvering going on here. And Tamar was the full sister of Absalom and the half sister. I said Tamar. Tamar. Tamar was the full sister of Absalom and the half sister of Amnon. So Amnon says it, he says he loves her, but it's more like an obsession. He can't get her out of his mind. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. For she was a virgin and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend. And let me just say, these are the kind of friends you have. If you have these kind of friends, you don't need enemies. Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab and the, uh, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And let me tell you uh, why this guy was worse than an enemy. Because this guy was sort of one of those morally neutral people. 
He was one of these guys that really just, if you were his friend, he'd listen to your dilemma and he really wasn't thinking about right and wrong. He was just thinking about how, you, how to help you solve your problem. He was approaching this more intellectually than he was morally or emotionally or spiritually. And so he gives them this wonderful piece of advice about how to rape his sister. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? And Amnon said to him, I love Tamar. I love Tamar, my brother's Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. Now, you remember that part I was talking about, about culture infiltrating a little bit? Well, there was superstition possibly going on here. There was a, a, <clears throat> there was a cultural understanding of the day that food prepared and served by the hand of a virgin could extend vitality to a person who was sick. So he would make a special request that his sister Tamar, the virgin, would make him, would prepare him the food herself, herself and serve it to him by her hand. And somehow that would um, extend, that would transfer her health and healing power to him. So David somehow bought a little bit of this into, into this argument or maybe just didn't even think about it at all. And it says, so Amnon laid down, pretended, pretended to be ill. And when the king came in to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I might eat from her hand. Then David said to Tamar, uh, then David sent home to Tamar saying, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. Now, you need to know here that David was a very smart guy. Up to this point, David had been brilliant, hadn't he? He'd been a brilliant leader. He'd been a brilliant leader of the people, a brilliant warrior. He'd been a brilliant military tactician. He always, always knew there were conspiracies going on all around him to get him, to kill him, to steal his power. He lamented it in the Psalms, but somehow he doesn't get that his half-son, who we'll see later, it's pretty notorious that this guy has a crush on Tamar. He doesn't get somehow that his half-son is playing him to get her alone so that he can take advantage of her. It doesn't occur to him, so it would seem. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down, and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. Did you see that? Let me tell you what I think, and this is just my speculation. But I think that she knew as well what was going on here a little bit. I don't know that she knew he was going to attack her, but I think she knew very well that he had a bit of he had a crush and an obsession about her. And I think that she was resigned to the fact that she lived in a kingdom and in an environment where she was powerless and where all she could do is use whatever reasoning and rationalization she could to sort of try and protect herself in the moment. So she did what she was told because she was told to by the king and her father. And she went to this man who she knew had a thing for her. And she did what she was supposed to do. And she made the food, but she, and she knew what he wanted her to do. She knew the custom, but what did she do? She tried to dump it out. Here it is. And he refused it. And he said, no, 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 no. And Amnon sent, uh, and Amnon said, send everyone out from me. That sound familiar? like father, like son. So everyone went out from him, 
And then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar, uh, Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel. Translation, things are different among us than they are among the people of these other nations. So she appeals to the moral law of Israel. And she says, do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? Now she's making an appeal to his human decency. For my sake, don't shame me this way. And then she makes another appeal. And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. She says, people will think you're insane. They'll think you're crazy. Everybody knows this isn't how things are done in Israel. So she makes an appeal to his own self-interest. And then in one of the most tragic moments in Scripture, she makes the last appeal. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold you from me. What she's saying is, if you're going to rape me, at least marry me first so that I can maintain my dignity in some form. She's resigned herself. She's playing the game. She's submitted to the culture. She's submitted to the corruption. She knows that there will be no protection from her father. She's proposing to do it right, to get married. And that even though God's law prohibited this, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it's very probable that there, were, there was cultural approval of this kind of union between a half-brother and sister. And she knew that David the king certainly would not deprive a young, vigorous man of his passions by respecting the dignity and rights of a woman, even his own daughter. He had demonstrated that he didn't have any problem doing that, which ought not to be done in Israel. And at least if Amnon married her, she wouldn't be so disgraced. There was a resignation to this whole sick scene. And you know what? I'm so glad that that, that that only happened then and it doesn't happen today. And this is the hard part. I'm so glad that it was only then that women were taken advantage of in, in situations, in families, in cultures, in communities, in which they knew that there was really no hope for them to get any real justice, for anyone to stand up for them and, and protect them. I'm so glad that that doesn't happen today. Well, that was the world that she lived in. But he would not listen to her. Being stronger than her, than she, he violated her and he lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. 
Translation. The heir to the throne of Israel, son of David, God's chosen king of God's chosen people, called out to bless the nations, raped his sister without remorse. No love, just lust. Use and throw away. I'm so glad that that only happened then. I'm so glad that throughout my childhood years and my high school years and my college years and even today, I don't ever witness and have never participated in the lustful use of a woman and the throwing of her away, the despising her once I've gotten what I want. I'm so glad that that is not celebrated in our culture on TV, that we don't revel in it. The biggest tragedy of all of this is that these two were made for so much more than this. And so are you, men of this church, and so are you, women of this church. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this is wrong and sending, this wrong and sending me away is greater than the, than the other that you did to me. She just said, the rape wasn't even as bad as casting me out and throwing me out in humiliation and making a public disgrace of me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. That long robe that she was wearing, the same description is given for the the robe that Joseph wore, the coat of many colors. This beautiful, colorful, ornate garment that was given to a child as a sign of affection from the father. This garment that she wore into the room, into the chamber of her half-brother who raped her. And devastated and mourning and knowing that she could not run to her father for protection or care, she tore that symbol of his affection. So his servant put her out and bolted the door, and Tamar put ashes on her, on her head and tore the long robe that she wore, and she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. Do you think people knew what happened when she left that chamber, when she walked out of that building and down the street? What's so sad about that moment is that the law held her innocent. She did everything that she was supposed to do when when she was under attack by a man. And that's covered many times in Scripture. She cried out, but there was no one there to hear her. There was no one there to defend her, including her own father. So in the law's eyes, she was innocent. But in her eyes, she was defiled. And I am so glad that that is not true today. I'm so glad there are not women walking around feeling guilt and shame over things that were done to them. It must stop. We must restore the image of God in us as men and as women and not tolerate this anymore.
And her brother Absalom said to her, his, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now, how would Absalom have such a specific, specific sense of what happened? Well, because he knew. He knew Amnon. He knew that Amnon liked his sister. He knew that Amnon was obsessed with her. And if he did, I have a hard time believing that David didn't know. Maybe today we would call it the good old boy thing. Everybody knew, but nobody cared the way they should. So he gives her this wonderful advice. Now hold your peace, sister. He's your brother. Do not take this to heart. Now I was mortified by that when I read it. And I still am, but I, I have a little bit different understanding of it because I see what he did after that. And I know that from the moment he heard what Amnon had done, he had a plan. But he knew that his sister was powerless to do anything about it. He knew that if she tried, it would lead to greater disgrace and who knows what. He knew there were political complexities of the situation and tried to comfort his sister, but he had a plan. Unfortunately, his plan of vengeance didn't do Tamar much good because we then read that Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. For Tamar, in, for Tamar in this life, there was no hope. She res resigned to her fate. She was destroyed. When King David heard all of these things, he was very angry. But he did nothing. But Absalom spoke to, him, to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. And if you did your personal worship, you know what happens next. You know that Absalom, very patiently, over a two-year period of time, conceives a brilliant plot to avenge his sister and to eliminate Amnon, the heir to the throne, who he hates. And he can't just go out and kill him because there's too much attached to that. There's too many, uh, there are too many risks to that. So he makes this plot. He works it out. And he gets Amnon drunk two years later. He gets him away, gets him drunk. And with no fear, take, take note of that, with no fear of his father David the king at all, he has Amnon, the heir to the throne, killed. And he doesn't try to hide it. David knows full well what happened to Amnon and why. The sword has entered David's house, and it will never leave. These two sons have followed after their father in rape and murder. And the sword will continue to do its work, the consequences of David's sin. So I want to leave you with a couple... Thoughts today, first to the men and then to the women. Um, first of all, to all of you, I'm so glad the story does not end here. That even for Tamar, there was hope in the life to come. But let me say this, let me make it very simple. As I said earlier, God made man after the nature and character of his son, Jesus. And God made woman after the nature and character of his Holy Spirit. 
And of course, of course they both, in their, in their God image, bear characteristics of all of those things. But very clearly and specifically, we see those two things held up as the nature and character of a man and the nature and character of a woman. And that means that all men have a responsibility to protect, to provide, to be a priest, to be a prophet for women. And women have that responsibility to encourage and engage and equip and support men in those relationships. But let me tell you, when you read this story, I don't know about you, but didn't you feel like you were watching TV? Didn't you feel like you were watching Law and Order or, or, or House of Cards or one of these other shows? Or how about just the nightly news? Or how about ESPN this week? There may not have been murders and a few things like that, but it was pretty close to everything else. Every, I, I, I did an experiment. On like Wednesday night, I was flipping through the channels and I just stopped for long enough on each channel to see what the story was. What was the narrative on this channel? And by the way, I'm not just picking on TV. My message is not going to be, so go out there and quit watching TV. It speaks to culture and it speaks to that which infiltrates us. Every single narrative on every single channel I turned to, including ESPN, was rooted in relational brokenness, sexual dysfunction and violence, especially toward women. What was lost to David is lost to us today. The beauty and dignity and purpose for which men and women were made. So men, let me say this to you. When God created man before the fall, man was, after Christ's likeness, creative. He was the creator. He was the provider. He was the one who would cultivate the earth and grow it and make it prosperous. And when he created woman before the fall, he, uh, the woman was created after the nature and character of the Holy Spirit. And she would be the encourager and equipper and empower of the man. He would need her. They would need each other in order to fulfill this mandate of creation that God had given them. And then the fall happened. And then man's role changed like Christ's role changed. Because now there was a battle going on. And now there was protection. There was a need for a mediator. There was a need for a priest and a prophet. So after the likeness of Christ, the man becomes the prophet. That means that he speaks on behalf of the Lord to his family. He becomes the priest. It means he speaks on behalf of his family to the Lord. It means he becomes the provider. He provides them what they need, not just materially, but he provides what they need in order to fulfill their mission of redemption in the world, to become who they need to be in Christ. And he's the protector. And so let me just encourage you guys. Standing here among you, as you know, as the chief of sinners. That when you look at a woman, any woman, when you have a relationship with a woman, any woman, when you think about your relationships in the past or the ones that you're engaged in now, your marriage, your dating relationships, um, all those different kinds of things. When you look on that screen when no one is watching, when you pull out your phone when no one is watching, those are women that you are to provide protect, be a priest, be a prophet for. And it starts with your wife. And if you don't have a wife, you're preserving yourself until you do and you can completely fulfill that relationship with her. And so let me challenge you to pursue that image of God in you as that kind of man and let Christ make you new. 
And to the women, I, I want to I leave you with this. Um, you know, I've had a few people talk to me this last few weeks and just say, man, it's really tough on women here. And it even seems like sometimes I read these verses, like when Nathan says to David, hey, I gave you all Saul's wives. It seems like maybe God is a little soft on this. Maybe he doesn't have much of a problem with some of these things. These aren't a big deal. Uh, you know, maybe he's kind of a, a polygamist himself or whatever. Well, let me tell you something. When you get into these little passages, sometimes you have to step back and you have to look at the whole counsel of Scripture and God's nature and character as is revealed throughout and His redemptive plan. And let me tell you, women, who might be wondering and discouraged what God's real heart is for you, that the God who made Adam and Eve to be one flesh was the same God who went to Leah the wife of Jacob, who Jacob hated, and said to her, I will be your husband. And he gave her children. And he gave her most of the sons that would become the tribes of Israel. He was the same God who through Jesus approached the woman at the well, the whore. The one who'd been with many men and everybody knew it and was there in the middle of the day because that was the only time she could go without being disgraced. Well, it was Jesus who approached her. It was Jesus who drank from the cup that she gave him and then offered her eternal life first. It was Jesus that betrothed himself to her by saving her. And it was her who became an evangelist to the Samaritans. And that was that same Jesus who proclaimed, you've heard it said that if you get divorced, you must provide a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, God hates divorce. And he said to the men, if you look on a woman with lust, it's the same as committing adultery in your heart. And women, it's the same Jesus who in the garden, on the night that he was betrayed, said to the father, oh, father, Please let this cup pass me by. But nonetheless, your will be done. And let me tell you what that cup was. That was a marriage analogy. That was a wedding analogy. That was the cup that a girl would take and drink if she agreed to marry a boy. If she didn't drink from the cup and push it aside, it meant that she wouldn't marry him. But, Jer but Jesus took the cup and he drank it. And he married his bride and he gave himself to her. He emptied himself out for her. And he loved her unconditionally and forever. That's what God thinks of you. And that's the way it's supposed to be no matter what's happened to you. And if statistics hold through, one in three of you in this room has been abused or in some other way attacked sexually. And that is not the heart of God. So I want to offer you a, a resource, a website, a web address. is going to come on the screen and it's going to stay up there after the service so that you don't have to write it down now if you don't want to. But if you've been affected by the kinds of things that happened to this poor woman in this passage... I want you to write this down. And it might be that you've been affected by them or you know someone who has and you want to get help for them. 
or you just want to be a part of helping women with this, or men, by the way, go to that link and you'll be able to fill out a very simple form that's kept very confidential. And we will help you uh, find the resources that you need. We have two particular ones that would be very useful to you. One of them is called Trees of Hope. It's a sexual abuse recovery ministry founded by a woman in this church named Dee Prieto. And the other is Hope Women's Center, which helps women who are pregnant um, hopefully make that decision to see the image of God in that child and carry that baby through. And then we come around those, fam- those women and make sure that those children become stories of redemption and not stories of cursing. And so I encourage you to do that. And lastly, please examine your lives. Examine what you put into your hearts and minds. Examine where culture and your own sin have infiltrated you and and have gone to battle with this image of God in you. And do not let your sin steal away the beautiful image of God in you and the redemptive work to which you've been called. Let's pray. Lord God, I am so glad this story doesn't end with this poor girl left in desolation. I'm so glad that there is hope for her and that there is hope for us because of the great groom, Jesus, who has loved us and given himself up for us, who is our prophet, our priest, our protector, our provider, and who can make all things new, both for the sinner and the one sinned against. So it's in His name that we come and it's in His name that we pray and it's in His name that we find our hope. And we pray, Father, that You would chip away at everything in us that does not look like that beautiful image You have made that does not look like Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.